Isaiah chapter 8 is on page 572 of your pew Bible, and if you would go there, we are going to look at just one or two more verses than what was in the reading a few moments ago. Uh, This chapter is a little bit challenging, especially for this time of year. It it doesn't quite fit with where we are in Advent and Christmas. It, It isn't really I don't know, filled with hope, except that it is. It's filled with a ton of hope, but that hope has to be seen as happening in the midst of everything else being wrong. There's a great deal of judgment that's going on, and that hope is in the middle of the judgment. The hope is even against the judgment, or with the knowledge that while the judgment is coming, the remnant shall be converted. Right? We talked about this a little bit last week and maybe the week before, that Isaiah has a, a son named Sha'ar Jashub, and that son is a sign, and his name, the remnant shall be converted, is then a promise from God that even though he's going to bring judgment upon Judah because of their unbelief and their idolatry, they're setting up temple, or temples but altars to Baal and worshiping at the high places, Since God's going to bring judgment on that, even so, he will use that judgment to pull the faithful together into their confession that they need him, into their prayers to him against the enemies who assault them, and that this will form a reformation, a a revival of the faith in their midst, which we do see happen throughout the book of Isaiah, moving from King Ahaz's life to King Hezekiah's life. Now, again, we can't go through that whole story here today. But where we are right now, we're we're still with Ahaz and Isaiah confronting Ahaz to tell him that his fear that these two countries, Israel and Syria, north of him, that they're going to be able to destroy him and set a puppet king on his throne, that this fear is misplaced. Because God Almighty, who is his God, even though he doesn't believe in him, is not going to let his throne fall because it's the throne of David. And he's promised that a savior is going to come for all humanity to sit on that throne. And so he warns him that he should not fear these other two smoldering wicks because they can't do anything. But what he should fear is the guy he's just asked to help him, which is the king of Assyria, a greater empire even farther north. And what Isaiah's message to Ahaz effectively is, is that if you just called on God, it would have been fine. But since you didn't call on God, I am going to bring the judgment that's coming to the north all the way to your gates, Jerusalem, all the way down to the edge of Judah. And then your son, Hezekiah, he will repent. And I will then reach out and save that remnant and restore them to faith. Now, chapter 8 is more of this same idea, just in other language, building upon the promise that the sign of salvation is this son who's going to be born to the maiden, and his name is going to be God is with us. Last week, we touched on this just barely. Clearly, this is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ, who is God in flesh with us, our Savior and the ultimate King. But it's also very likely that there was a temporal or a early fulfillment of this promise within Ahaz's own household, that Hezekiah's birth to a young woman who had not yet really been with Ahaz, but happened after this event, that this is an early fulfillment of the sign. And then in this then birth of the new king, we have a promise 
that God is going to be with his people and call them back to faith, right? Which is, again, what happens when Hezekiah repents as Assyria is at the gates. Okay, so then, this land then, Judah, Jerusalem, is also referenced as Emmanuel, the people who God is with. And that's where our text really picked up today. We started with verse 8, but I want to push back just a little bit to verse 6, okay? Uh, Where it says, because this people, that is Judah, Jerusalem, has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoiced over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. There's a lot of kind of code language there. Okay, we talked last week about Rezin, the king of Damascus, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, who's a nobody. That's why son of Remaliah is his name, not anything special, no promises there, but he is the king of Israel. So those both are going to be destroyed, but It's because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh, it says. So Judah also is going to have trouble because Shiloh wasn't good enough. What's Shiloh? Shiloh is a stream that that waters Jerusalem, basically. It's, It's like a brook that allows the city to have water. And in this way, what Isaiah is talking about is the kingdom of Jerusalem, God's temple, David's throne. Since you didn't think that was enough and you reached out to Assyria, right? Well, therefore, what you reach out to, the river, that's going to come at you, okay? The river is either the Tigris or the Euphrates, probably the Euphrates. I believe that is the larger of the two. These are the two, I mean, if you went to high school, you have to know about these two rivers that the, the, the original river valley and the Fertile Crescent is founded on, right? So ancient civilization is all about the Tigris and Euphrates. Well, this river then, where Assyria and Nineveh's capital is gaining its strength and its power, it's going to be rising up against this little brook of Shiloh. So then uh, verse 10 Uh, Excuse me, verse 7 continues. I didn't finish reading it. The river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria. So, So he calls the king of Assyria this river, right? And all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. You know, I've not been here long enough to really know, does the Rock River ever overflow its banks, like completely, like into the city streets? I'm seeing nodding heads. Okay, well, so imagine that then, but imagine it flowing all the way down State Street, down to Cherry Valley, right? It's completely wiping out everything in its path because of the flood. That's the picture here that the river Euphrates is supposed to invoke as the king of Damascus, excuse me, the king of Assyria's armies, right? This isn't really about a river. It's about the nation of Assyria and their troops flooding into Judah, right? Verse eight, then where we picked up and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on reaching even to the neck, right? So if you're in a river up to your neck, are you dead yet? Uh, no, not quite, but you're, you're in trouble, right? So think of that again as getting even to the gates of Jerusalem, where Rabshakeh will shout about how the people will die, and Jesus sent him to do this. Uh, it's a great story. Again, that's Hezekiah's story. It will reach even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel, right? So, so your land, God who's with you, he's going to let this happen, right? 
So let's just kind of step back for a second. Let's say you're not a fan of King Ahaz. Let's say you don't like the fact that he took down the altar in the temple. You actually are really bothered by the fact that the priests are no longer teaching the word of God. And you're hearing Isaiah preach this. You're the remnant. And you're watching the world you want to be not be. In fact, it's becoming more and more evil. What are you to make of this? That God has said, well, guess what? I'm bringing the judgment on you anyway. Now, I think this has implications for we who are alive today in these United States. And forget the United States. You could put the state of Illinois here. You could put the city of Rockford here. You could put the global reality here. It doesn't matter. If you look at where we were as a civilization 100 years ago, whether or not people were Christians, they believed in Christian things. They believed in Christian values. And right now we're in a place that's so topsy-turvy, upside down, and spread backwards that you don't know which way is going what and where. The news cycle comes at you so fast, it's changing stories left and right. One second they're saying they never did it. The next second they're saying they did it and it was right and they should have done it. And they expect you to just go along with all of this, regardless of what it is. I want you to see this confusion as God's judgment upon a people who don't believe he exists. It's not so different. You're sitting here watching the enemy rise up against you and get stronger. What should you do? What remains in the text is going to have peppering elements about that. There's going to be more judgment here. And what's difficult about this section especially is one second Isaiah is talking to this group, one second, he's talking to that group. So he's going to move his, his, his uh, statements around a bit. But what we want to do is pay attention to what's the remnant supposed to be? What's the remnant supposed to do? Okay, so first, verse 9, uh, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. I like the the King James, gird up your loins and be broken. Gird up your loins and be broken. Uh, this is language about how nobody's going to stop God from doing what he wants to do. Nobody. Huh? Rezin and Pika, are they going to be able to stop Assyria from sweeping them away? Nope. Why? Because Assyria is so great? Nope. Because God wants it to happen. Assyria, are they going to be able to destroy Jerusalem? Nope. Because Jerusalem's so great? No, not out of itself, but because God's name is there, because God wants it to happen. But notice the scoffing then, the, the, the confident scoffing that Isaiah has. Go ahead, get ready. Build a wall. Set up your, your institution. Get a big army. Put some tanks and Patriot missiles somewhere. You make sure you're ready because it's just going to be, you getting destroyed anyway. And the point isn't that this or that place is going to be destroyed. I don't know the future. I have no idea what's going to go on on the other side of the planet. Will they unleash nuclear weapons? I don't know. But I'll tell you what, nothing's going to happen without God saying that's what's going to happen. And the more you try to set yourself up to like survive on your own, the more it's just going to like not work. The more it's just going to break into pieces. Yeah. Verse 10, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. That means try to argue against God. See how it works. Won't work. Won't work. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Now, here's the hope. For God is with us. So in the midst of all of this, set yourself up. Defend yourself. Go ahead. It'll break down. The setting up is against God. The attack is against the people of God. 
And so no matter what they do, the people of God shall have God with them, and then he will turn whatever happens into good for you. And this is where it's really hard to think this way right now, right? I mean, it just let's just take the economy for a moment. I mean, it looks bad. It looks really bad right now. It doesn't look like it's getting better anytime soon. Uh, it's, it's easy to worry about that. It's easy to wonder, and I saw the, the statistic, I think it was just this week, that for average American family, an extra $400 a month right now. You're just spending $400 a month more to do what you were doing last year at this time, right? And that's increasing, 7% every month, increase, or every year. Uh, the rate of the annual increase is 7% last month. The month before, it was 8%. Huh? So where is it really going to settle? Uh, none of it's really good. The Federal Reserve wants to get it down to 2%. That's why they're hiking interest rates. That's why all the loans are getting more expensive. It doesn't look good. That's my point. I don't care about the finances of it. What I care about is how I know you know it doesn't look good. And then the temptation is for you to think this is bad for me. But what this passage tells you to think is that this is good for you. How can it be good for me that my bank account won't be as big as I want it to be? Because God's with you. No matter what happens, God's with you. He has you in the palm of his hand. He has chosen you as his own remnant, regardless of what happens to the nation or the city in which you dwell. And as much as you should seek its good, you should seek its good. Nonetheless, if he decides to punishment, punish it, it will nonetheless turn back to good for you in your faith in him. We're going to get to this a second in a second here, right? Where should we go? What do we turn to? That's coming. Uh, verse 11, though, here. Uh, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. I love this. I absolutely love this. Just take the first part first. So he says, don't be like the unbelievers. Don't walk the way they walk. And what that means specifically is don't listen to what they are listening to. Because if you listen to their mythology, then you will start to speak their mythology. And as a result, you will start to talk about all of these things that are super dangerous and we're super worried about it and we got to do this and that. Otherwise, we'll never survive. And he's saying, don't, don't be part of that. Step out from that. Now, the fact that it happens to be conspiracy theories that he's talking about, to me, it just tickles my, my heart a little bit here. It doesn't matter which news station you prefer to listen to. Which of the two sides of this big war of, of ideas that we got going on, you prefer to listen to? Both of them accuse the other of conspiracy. Both of them. So one way or the other, there's all this shouting left and right about how there's these secret people with lots of power who are going to do these wicked things. And if you don't do this on our side, then it'll all go bad. Gird up your loins and be broken. Go ahead, fight for them. No, he says, do not call everything that they call fearful fearful. Don't join them like Chicken Little, running around terrified of the sky falling, even if the sky is actually falling. Stand with your head held high amongst the ruins of this world, not surprised by the fact that this world is in ruins and tatters. The scripture has told us this all along. The central image of the Old Testament about what your life right now is like is wandering in the wilderness 
living in tents, eating bread and, and meat given by God that you cannot keep for more than a day. That's the picture of your life as a Christian until Jesus comes back. Now, the fact that it's not that bad for you, that you have a house and a refrigerator, again, I mean, well, we've got it pretty good, actually, compared to the ancient Israelites. Yeah. But then if we're going to take those things, those good things, and make them things we're so afraid of losing that we cannot trust that God's in control of what's going on, well, then what are those things? I mean, you probably don't think about your refrigerator as an idol very often. And I'm, I'm sure you don't bow down to it and worship it. But again, anything that you fear so much, that you can't imagine living without it, well, it's, it's taken more of your heart than it needs to. Now, this, I'm not saying this here so you should feel condemned. Well, I'm not really very faithful. No, the point here is for the wisdom that Isaiah is teaching us to start to trickle into your heart and encourage you. Oh, you're right. I don't have to be afraid of these things. Oh, you're right. I know they said it's a conspiracy, and maybe it actually is, but who cares? Because they can gird up their loins all they want. They're just going to be broken against God's will. If it's God's will that they put themselves in that place to break down, well, then that will be for the good of the next generation of the faith. And so I will pray and sing praises to my God that gives and takes away, that rises up and casts down, because I know he's with me. How do I know that? Come on, Lutherans. You're baptized into Jesus Christ. You know he's with you. He's washed you with his word. He's regenerated you with his Holy Spirit. It's a deposit of faith that you cannot choose, but he has chosen. You are his. Yes? Okay, so then, verse 13, right? Don't fear everything the world fears. Verse 13, but Jesus of hosts, Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. I love this. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Paul said it this way, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Lift up your voice in prayer and petition. Right? Fearing God doesn't mean running away scared of God. It means whenever you're afraid of something else, you realize that fear is misplaced. That fear is misplaced. God's in charge. So fear of God, let him be your dread, means realize that the worst thing that can happen is that God takes his Holy Spirit away from you. And since he's not going to do that, because he's promised to, he's not going to do that, then what can happen to you? What can man do to you? So again, why are you afraid of this, that, and the other thing? Whatever it might be, again, that they're, that they're shouting at you this week, try to keep you distracted. Yeah. Verse 14, he will become a sanctuary. Let God be your dread. He will be a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. So the sanctuary is what I want you to focus on here, right? To you, Jesus is a sanctuary. He is the one who brings the peace that passes understanding, a conscience that is clean, a mind that can see beyond the dregs of this life. But when you hold to that truth, please expect that the rest of the world who are walking on the wide way to destruction are going to be offended by that. I mean, goodness gracious, these days they're offended by everything. Uh, what was the one? There was a, uh, she, I think she's a, a lesbian in England who said that men can't be lesbians. Is New Zealand, I forget where it was in the news. Men can't be lesbians, and she got arrested. You know, hate speech. Goodness gracious. I mean, and, and you're, you're worried about, you know, whether or not they're going to like you at the dinner table. You're, you're fine right now, but be ready for the offense. Be ready not to change just because someone else pouts and whines and plays the bully emotionally. Huh? Because you're actually here to be that offense. Can you win a game? Without offense? 
I know a good defense is a good offense. I've heard that before. But still, you've got to score, right? And yet we're so afraid to offend anybody. We're afraid to be on offense. Why is that? How they talk us into being ashamed of what we believe. There you can see the oppression that really is working through all of these stories they're telling. They're not just stories, right? They're not just philosophies. They're spiritualities. And they've, they've weakened our conviction. So expect that God's fear in you will be a sanctuary to you even as the offense comes. Now, I want you to put your finger in your your Bible where you are and turn to page 1014. It's all the way near the back. Just just to show you where the New Testament picks up on some of this. St. Peter picks up on this verse from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14 in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 4. I'm just going to read it through um, and not comment too much about it. But I want you to see how much this stone of stumbling and this rock of offense idea comes out. Because he's going to quote other texts of scripture that pull it up. So chapter 2, verse 4, bottom right-hand column on page 1014. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and, here it is from Isaiah, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as, do you see it there, sojourners walking through the wilderness. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the nations, the Gentiles, honorable So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The stone of stumbling, the rock of offense, Jesus the foundation, Jesus the cornerstone. This is all about his death and resurrection, his ascension and his return, his total atoning sacrifice, buying you with his blood, making you then set apart, called out, different from the world. How? Through faith. That is, the ability to trust in him rather than to trust in what you see and what you do. And even though the mountains give way and the earth collapse into the sea, yet you will look to him as your God. Yeah. Back on page 572, back in chapter 8. Verse 15 says, Many shall stumble on this stone. They shall fall and be broken. It shall be snared and taken. That means that preaching about Jesus Christ does not guarantee conversion. 
It means that no matter how much you might struggle to say it just right for your friend or your neighbor or your, your beloved family member who doesn't believe, you struggle to say it just right so that they'll believe you don't have that power. All you have the power to do is to state what is true, to witness to what has been delivered once and for all to you, the Christian church. And then God will do with it what he will. And what this text really wants you to expect is that the majority of people won't believe it at all. The way is narrow that leads to salvation. The way that goes to destruction, it is broad. You're on the narrow way. Rejoice in this and hold your head high. But don't be deceived into thinking that you can manipulate God into saving people he is not going to save. Don't get me wrong, he died for all. We know this. We also know that many will reject this. And Jesus' own proclamation of himself, he is risen. Hallelujah, if it doesn't strengthen you, then it will harden you. It will harden you. We need to be prepared for this. So then, verse 16, though, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. That means get the word of God into your heart, your mind, your mouth, and don't let go. Whatever church is going to be about, it better be about what God has actually said. Let's stand firm on that rock that cannot be moved. And expect the salvation of God to break forth in our lives because of the knowledge which he has imparted in our hearts. Bind that testimony. Seal it on you. Speak it at the dinner table. Open your hymnals at home and sing a hymn this Advent after dinner. Do anything you can to make this word part of your daily ritual and life. Open Psalm 119. Read eight verses, right? Or start at the start of the Psalter. Just read one Psalm a day. There's many ways to do it, but the point is, again, Do you want to survive? Do you want your family to not have all the collapsing collapse upon us? Well, you can't guarantee this, but if you have any hope at all, it's going to be through God saving you from it. So let's open our mouths and ask God to do so. It's hard to answer prayers when no one's praying to you. And if all your prayers are kind of sidelong things for, well, my friend got sick, please heal him. But this is not prayer life. Uh, that's, That's looking for the vending machine in the sky. What we need, what we need most here at St. Paul, let me tell you right now, I need you to pray for young families to join our church. You should ask Jesus to bring young families into our church. Ask him every day. Jesus, can you bring 10 young men with their wives and children into our church? Can you make disciples here in the midst of this congregation with us so that we can impart to them what you've given to us? Can you let it be that our our lamp does not go out in the midst of all these other lamps going out? Will you strengthen our lampstand? Will you pour oil into our faith? Will you set on fire what we believe to be true? I need you praying for that. I'm praying for that. I'm just one. If we all are asking God to sustain our faith, to give us wisdom, to lift us up in the Holy Spirit, do you think he will deny us? And you don't know the scriptures if you think he will deny us. But if we're not going to ask, we're just going to wander. We're going to let the fear of the wind and the rain and everything else blow us every which direction so that all our prayers are just for more stuff. Well, then we stand in more jeopardy than, than I would like to admit. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching. Verse 17, I will wait for Jesus who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Jesus Christ is hiding his face from the church in America. He is. Because the church in America, so far as it is publicly seen, has been on the forefront of every wicked thing that's happened in this country. 
You can find churches across this country right now still teaching very loudly, abortion is a right, you need to have it. Teaching that marriage is a loving of two people no matter what they are, no matter what they love. Is it a donkey? I don't care. If you love it, that's great, get married. You got churches in this country completely rejecting the identity of Jesus as an actual historic figure. He's nothing more than a good moral teacher. He's nothing more than a social justice warrior. He's not certainly God who died and rose again. So God has turned his back on us as a wide movement. I'm not saying you, St. Paul, and I'm not necessarily saying the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, although we have wandered. We have wandered. But I'll leave that for another time. He has turned his back on us, and you can see it. Its proof is in the pudding. Our pews are not full the way they once were, period. End of story. It doesn't happen as the result of faithful teaching. Faithful teaching does not empty the pews unless the people have already been hardened, in which case then, again, God turns his back. But notice, again, acknowledging that God has turned his back on the church because of our lack of belief doesn't mean do something about it. What's he say at the front of the verse? I will wait. I will wait for Jesus. And then he reminds us about these signs that he has, the children whom God has given him, signs importance for Israel. So not only Sha'ar Jashub, that the remnant will be converted, but another one from earlier in this chapter, we didn't talk about him, but Mahar Shalahashbahaz, uh, who is about the destruction of Assyria coming upon the people. They are signs and portents that he will trust in. But now look down to then verse 20. We're going to close here. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Do you want the light to break upon you and shine with peace in your heart? Do you want the dawn from on high to end the night, which is filled with fear and darkness? Well, to the teaching, to the testimony, to the word, because the light is there in the face and body of Jesus Christ and the knowledge of him as the one true God as the king who is stooped down to be born in the stable in order to choose you to be his son. In the name of Jesus, amen.